Um, man, as we continue to unpack these ideas through God's Word in 1 Peter, as we, Lord willing, wrap up this letter to, from, first, from Peter, <laughs> from 1 Peter, um, it's actually just from Peter, it's not the first Peter, um, <clears throat> what a great last couple of weeks, if you've been here, that we got to celebrate. Um, I really feel like God um, chose, not surprisingly, super well in having uh, Bob Livesay teach us about shepherding, leading, um, teaching, discipling, and uh, what a great gift it was to have him a couple of weeks ago take us through those sections of 1 Peter 5, and then to have John Redfern Sr., um, the right man to teach us about humility, deference to God, submission to His Word. Um, and so what a, what a great experience. If you were not able to be here the last two weeks, I highly recommend you go online and, uh, and check those out, and uh, I think you'll be challenged and encouraged by them. Here as we wrap up a letter written to aliens and strangers, and that's us. Um, we are strangers in a strange land. We are aliens here, um, and we know that there's some aspect that we don't belong here. It feels a little off to us, and, um, and periodically we have great reminders to us of how off it is. Um, and also, there's a way that the people of the world, the world is uncomfortable with us. There's a sense in which they recognize they don't like having us around that much. That They kind of have that sense of, you're not from around here, are you, feeling when we're around. And and they know that there's something there, and, and we, we run into that, we experience that, and, uh, and over time we can learn to, we will learn even to experience the hatred from the world and the persecution of the world, and, and that's what this whole letter is about. This whole letter from Peter is to a church that is under persecution, that is being abused and mistreated and pressured. Um, their businesses are being shut down, their houses are being taken from them, their, their rights and their freedoms are being stolen. Um, because of no other reason than that they are Christians. And so for us to embrace this, to experience this, to be prepared for this, that whether this happens in our culture or community or not, um, all generations of Christians everywhere must be prepared for it. And certainly there are Christians around the world today, thousands of them, millions of them, who are facing these things in a very real way every day. Um, sometimes I think we have it a little too comfortable here, um, and that can be a problem. And, and it's hard for us to seek discomfort it's hard for us to put ourselves in a situation where we're uncomfortable. We actually, most of our innovations and our technological advances are meant to bring us comfort, and we love comfort. And he's preparing us to be uncomfortable. I'm going to start reading in verse 8 and read down through most of the section we're looking at today just to prepare us. Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. So we'll start back in verse 8. This language here, be sober-minded, be watchful. This is military language. Um, this is more than just pay attention, although it's certainly that. This is, this is a statement of, you are on watch. So um, those of you who, um, who have served the veterans, we've, we've re uh, recognized and honored, respected um, you this week. Um, all of a, can I get a, just a hand raise of our veterans so we can applaud and say thank you um, for you guys uh, and girls? Uh, we really appreciate that and getting to celebrate and look at that, especially this week. Um, which I'm so glad that we do. So you've experienced what it is, probably you've experienced what it is to be on watch. 
Some of you may have even experienced what it means to be on watch in a combat zone, which must be completely different. Being on watch on a base in Texas is probably a very different experience than being on watch in a danger zone, in a combat zone. Uh, my grandfather uh, flew B-25s in World War II, and, uh, and there, his base was in Port Moresby in New Guinea, in Papua New Guinea, um, in the 1940s, in the Japanese theater. And um, the last, one of the last events, uh, last, I guess it was in the last month of his life, he jumped out of his bed one night in the middle of the night, uh, this is 50 years after the event, 60 years after the event, and smacked his head against his bedside table, gave himself a big old black eye, um, and I don't remember, but then the last few years of his life. And, uh, and when I asked him what had happened, he had had a dream during the night, and one of his dreams, uh, one of the things he remembered was in Port Moresby, um, the, the pilots would sleep on the wings of their B-25. And so they would sleep, you know, with one hand on top of the pillow and one hand under the pillow, and the hand under the pillow was holding the pistol that they had at all times, um, because in, in New Guinea at the time, there were still headhunters, cannibals, um, and American soldiers who got kind of off base or out of the, in the jungle a little bit or too close to the fence might get dragged off into the jungle and turned into a meal for the, um, for the headhunters there. And so they lived in constant, and that was just of the of the tribes people, much less the actual combat enemies, the Japanese soldiers who could show up at any time. And, and he said often during the night, most nights, the, the, you know, people would be taking shots into the jungle at noises they heard and things like that. It was always a, a constant sense of fear that they lived with, enough that he was traumatized so that 50 years later he is still diving out of his bed in the middle of the night um, because he's feeling like he's needing to jump off the wing of his plane and defend himself. Um, it's a different thing to be on watch in a combat zone, and Peter's telling us there's an enemy who's out to destroy you. You need to be on watch. This isn't a safe zone. This is, this is a combat zone. He describes our enemy this way, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I know Peter didn't do this on purpose, but he could not have created a better picture to terrorize at least my wife um, when it comes to um, a picture of the, of the enemy. She has a phobia of big cats, and we have a hard time even going to those sections of the zoo, right? And so it's pretty scary. I don't know, and she didn't have this as a kid that we know of. It was sharks when she was a kid, but, um, uh, which we all have, because, you know, they're a big problem here in East Texas, uh, the, the shark problem. <laughs> um, I do too. But actually, it may be my fault that she has a fear of lions. So I read out loud to Ginger most nights, and early on in our marriage, there was a series of books I thought, well, she'll be fascinated by these. These will be great books to read. Um, there are a series of books by a guy named Capstick. I think we have the covers um, of them. Uh, these are the books that I read out loud that she was falling asleep to at night. Um, I'm not, this, none of this is a joke. Uh, uh, these, are, these are true stories about big game hunters, especially, and like Death in the Long Grass was about the Tsavo Lions. Um, even if you've not read them, they're brilliant books, by the way, but if you've not read them, you maybe you've watched the movie Ghost in the Darkness, which is a true story about uh, the man-eating lion, so it, it may be my fault um, that she has this. Uh, so, Inception's a real thing. So, you're, um, uh, now here's what's fascinating. The language here, your adversary, the devil, is interesting language. It means literally your prosecutor, the slanderer, is a way that this language in the Greek actually comes out. Um, your prosecutor, the slanderer. The Greek here is uh, uh, diabolos, and where we get diablo or, or, or the devil, is that, that's the language. And so digging into that, I knew there has to be something special. The Greek language doesn't, doesn't have words like that just thrown together that don't mean something. And so digging into it, 
Um, it didn't make sense at first. Daya means from, and balo means to throw or cast or strike. It's actually where we get the word ball. So it's a, um, that's the, the idea, to throw or cast or to strike something. So from, throw, like how do those go together to, dis, to, to kind of describe what the devil is or who he is? So what does it mean? Well, it turns out that the language is meant to indicate someone who throws something across the path of another. In other words, someone who sets up a barrier or a snare in the path. Someone who lays a trap. Specifically, we, um, we looked this week and honored those who were in the Vietnam conflict in America because um, the anniversary there. They learned to live in a constant sense of fear while in the jungle of things being in the path. Traps and, and explosives and, and things like that being stuck there. And so they lived in a constant fear of that. And this is the idea the idea that the devil is someone who, who lies waiting in the path, who's someone who disrupts the path that God has for us, who gets in our way, who lays traps for us, who is there trying to undermine us. In fact, uh, I think diabolos is essentially the opposite. It is the antonym for a paraclete. <laughs> a paraclete is a comforter. literally means someone who walks alongside that's the word for the Holy Spirit. It's a word for, the, for what a counselor is, someone who's supposed to come alongside and walk with you and make the path more safe, whereas Diabolo is there to make the path less safe, to make it dangerous, scary. That's who he is. He is, a, he is an, an enemy, an accuser, a liar, a slanderer. And I, I want to take a minute and comment. <clears throat> Many, I know that probably, you know, probably half the audience or so, let me encourage you, your internal dialogue or your internal monologue may be really, really harsh at yourself. It may be that the, the internal language in your brain is slander against you. It, it is saying the horrible things, the abusive things, the, the judgmental things, the foul things, the cursing things inside of your own head at yourself. And I would love to encourage you, don't join with the devil on this. It's hard enough to have a slanderer who's outside of our heads. To have one that's inside of our heads is just to join with him as a slanderer against ourselves. And you don't need to do that. We have a different identity that comes with us, and it comes with Christ. And, and I'll unpack some more of that later. But, but learning to accept God's Word in our head versus sometimes our own thoughts, even, that can be horrible. So how do we respond to this lion? The Bible says, resist him. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Stand firm. Don't move. This makes sense from a military perspective also. The Romans, all the way back, the Romans and the Greeks and the Macedonians before them, when they fought in combat, often fought with these massive shield walls. These shield walls that they could set up and even move around. It was brilliant. Their tactics were brilliant. It was called the phalanx formation, where they would interlocking shields and they could learn to march with them even in Changed directions, but where they were at their best was on the first crush of battle when thousands of, of barbarians would come rushing down the hill at you and you would set up the shield wall and they would smash into it. And your job was to stand firm, not move. Let them crush themselves against your shield wall was the idea. And that's the language being used here. How do you, why do you do that? Knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is why that's my symbol for men's ministry is the phalanx formation, is that we know how do I stand because I know the man on this side of me is standing. I know the man on this side of me is standing. I know the guy behind me, behind me is standing with his shield in my back supporting us. And this is Peter saying this is happening all around the world. 
the enemy that we face, the temptations that we face, the trials that we face, they're being faced by all kinds of people all the time. There's nothing we, there's no temptation that we experience that isn't common to mankind. There's no trial we face that there aren't others who have faced it first and worse. It's why I wanted to sing Mighty Fortress again today to talk about this. That we find great comfort in this, that he is our mighty fortress. When Luther unpacks this, isn't it fascinating, by the way, um, uh, that, that how often hymns, which are great theology texts, how often they reference the devil. How often they reference the role of God working in our lives to stand against this enemy. And sure enough, this is what Luther's song is about, that God is our fortress, a bulwark, meaning a military wall, um, a help in the flood of human ills. We're surrounded up to our neck with the failures and disappointments and hurts that humans can bring in. He is our helper. He's the one who pulls us out of the waves of the flood. Luther points out there's an enemy out to destroy us. He is powerful, and he is motivated by an intense hatred for God and for us, his people. And if it was just up to us, if it was just us against him, we wouldn't stand a chance. He was created so much more powerful than us. This enemy, this lion, this devil who, we've, who we face against, he is powerful and motivated. If it were just us, we would lose. But we have a champion, a champion who faces him down. Lord Sabaoth is his name. Now, if you're like me, you grew up thinking mostly for a lot of reasons that God was essentially the God of Sunday, right? There's a lot of reasons why I thought that. But it's not, it's not the, this is not the Lord Sabbath. Um, this is Sabaoth. It means the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, <laughs> the God of the heavenly armies. That's what Sabaoth means. You may not have pictured this correctly in the past. We're going to get to Advent in just a couple of weeks. And one of the stories that may come up in Advent is when you have these shepherds abiding in the fields, right? They're hanging out in the fields, and an angel shows up and declares the glory of what God is doing in Jesus Christ, and it says, then what? What shows up? A host of heavenly beings, right? That's not a band. It's not a choir. It's an army. A host means armed for battle. The hosts of heaven show up to celebrate, to protect and oversee this moment. This is the grand army of heaven. It is undefeatable. It is undefeated. It's, it's why it's the song says, and he must win the battle. That doesn't mean like, please, 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 please win that battle. What it means is, no, he's going to win this battle. It is inevitable. That's what the word must there means. It's inevitable. It's only a matter of time before he wins. And you got to love, even though our version didn't have it capitalized, the original versions, the, 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 the little joke that Luther hides in his little song there when he says, one little word will fell him. That's kind of a, I think, I think, honestly think it's Luther being cute. Uh, it's just going to, just look, look, one little word, that's all it's going to take to fell him. But the word, word is capitalized. One little word, that's all it's going to take. You know, the one from John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's just one little word that's going to fail him. We have, a, we have someone who fights for us, and that's who it is. Um, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, there's a picture that I like to use um, in my counseling office. There's a, a portrait, a painting up uh, of a lighthouse. And I love the concept of a lighthouse. I think there's so many wonderful things about it. I love the imagery of lighthouses in storms. The visual, uh, I could sit and stare at them for just watch and watch while I work, this idea. 
It's natural for us when we face storms, when we face hardships, for us to want to storm back. You know what? we got a storm in our life. Well, I'm just going to storm right back against that storm. And then we have a big giant storm, and that doesn't really help much. Or we feel like a rowboat in the storm, right? We're scared, and we're just going to get tossed around, and, and the people around us, it just smashes around us, and instead recognizing, no, no, our God is a mighty fortress. When the storm is over, by the way, it's like a 75-foot-tall lighthouse. When the storm is over, guess what will still be right there? That lighthouse will still be right where it was at the end of the storm. It's not going anywhere. What about a really big storm? It's not going anywhere. The lighthouse is firm. It's safe. It's going to be there. And that's how God calls us. We get to be like that. When, when the world around us seems to be in tumult, we have a mighty fortress. We have a bulwark that we can depend on. And then Peter makes clear, remember you also that you aren't alone in this. There's a brotherhood of believers who are facing these things. Um, <laughs> I love that we're supposed to remember the Lord and the brotherhood. Years ago, reading a, a book by Hemingway called um, Men at War, <clears throat> Hemingway talks about how scared he was going into combat the first time, how terrified he was. And as a non-believer, obviously, I can say like, yeah, I'll, I'll bet extra, extra so, right? And he's saying, I don't even have a way. He didn't have any way to comfort himself. He couldn't think of anything that was comforting to him as he went into combat. And then he remembered, wait a minute, people have been doing this. Men have been doing this for generations. Millions upon millions of people have had this moment when they've gone into combat, and somehow they did it. If they did it, I can do it. Well, there's something powerful in knowing that there's a brotherhood. There's a sisterhood of believers out there who are facing these things bigger and sometimes harder and more difficult things than we are. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes have a hard time making God seem real enough in my head to be motivated by Him. It's a confession. I don't know if you have that same experience sometimes. It's hard for me to recognize God as real enough and active enough and present enough in my life to be motivated by Him. The idea of shaming God, I hate the thought of shaming God, of letting God down. But at the same time, I figure, eh, he's probably used to it by now, right? I mean, it's got to be, you have that same feeling? I don't know. I, maybe it's just me. However, the thought of letting down the brothers and sisters who for the last 2,000 years have faced the kind of persecution and hardship that they have, of letting down my church and my friends and my family, for some reason, that's a much more present motivation for me. Remembering the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the fidelity, the, the church out there, I will not shame them and I won't forget them. That feels much more present for me at times in the moment. And then we have verse 10 when Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Once more, Peter's saying, entrust yourself to Him. Trust Him. He's got this. And I love this phrase, suffer for a little while. Wow. To speak so flippantly of death. To speak so flippantly of suffering. Ah, man, yeah, you're going to suffer. It's just for a little while. And you know what kind of suffering we're talking about here? The kind of torment and torture that the Romans could bring on Christians and did all the time? It's just a little suffering, Peter says. It's not a big deal. Remember, this is someone who fought against the concept of suffering with every bit of energy he had during the Gospels. No one should, no, Jesus, far be it. You shouldn't suffer. No one should have to suffer. I don't, none of us want to have to suffer. And yet now he's going like, sure, of course you're going to suffer. It's just for a little while. Many of the disciples were crucified like Jesus was. According to the physiologist Jeremy Ward, someone nailed to a crucifix 
with their arms stretched out on either side, could expect to live for no more than 24 hours. Just a little while, right? Peter, according to church history, was crucified upside down. The physiologist said dehydration, stroke, or most likely his lungs being pressed on by heavier organs, his intestines and his, his liver, etc., are probably what suffocated him to death. A man caught upside down in a cave a few years ago took 28 hours to die. Just a little while. Man, to talk that flippantly about death, what kind of faith must that be? And by the way, when you face the trials, this God who loves to give good gifts freely, this God of all grace, the one who really does love you in an outrageous way, don't worry, he's going to take care of you. Romans 8.18, the Apostle Paul says, same concept, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These are men who knew what it was to suffer. Spent a lot of their lives suffering and in pain and being persecuted and even tortured. When we face the trials after we experience the pain, this God who is so gentle with us and who loves us so much will give freely these things to us. The one who has chosen us to be his will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Now you can probably guess that those, three, those four words could be each a sermon in themselves. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. So restore, and they're, they're kind of synonyms, honestly. Restore, to make something completely adequate, to qualify it, to confirm. This is a fun one, especially given the lighthouse picture. It literally in the Greek means to render it immobile, to make it immovable, something that can't move, to strengthen, to give something the energy to create or resist movement, to establish here means to found you, to give you a firm foundation. You can see that they're kind of synonyms. Well, listen, when, when you face these persecutions, God in all of His grace is going to pour these things out on you. You will be restored. You will be strengthened. You will be confirmed. You will be immovable. These are His job, and He does them. Does He do them here after suffering? Yes. And, of course, after we walk through death with finality, He gives them to us for eternity. Peter's preparing them to live or die in fullness, as the fullness of the grace of God and the glory of Christ. And then we get to the parting words from Peter in his letter. 1 Peter 5.12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Um, I love that, that this language, it shows up in Peter's writings and in the Hebrews letter that he has written briefly. There's so much more he would love to say, but he's kind of run out of time. He just got a little bit here. And I know we, we listen, reread that and we go like, wow, briefly. We've been talking about 1 Peter for almost a year. I mean, that's not fair to him, though. I mean, it's, it only takes 15 minutes to read the letter that he wrote. So it just takes us forever to go through it. But here's what he says. This is great. By Silvanus, a faithful worker, I regard him. I've written briefly, exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of, the true grace of God. Sent with someone apparently named Silvanus. Um, and possibly written by Silvanus too. Silvanus may have been his scribe. So Peter's, you know, walking around dictating this letter to Silvanus. Silvanus is writing it in the Greek. We don't know that, that Peter would have known how to write this well um, in Greek. So maybe that he had a scribe. That might have been Silvanus. He's telling Silvanus what to say. And then Silvanus is the one who takes the letter and takes it to the churches in Asia Minor. But here's what's cool. I didn't know this until, not kidding, this week preparing this sermon... But Sylvanus is a full name, like Christopher is my full name, but the name I go by is Chris. Sylvanus has an equal version of that. Sylvanus' nickname is Silas. 
So for those of you who have grown up in the church or who have studied Scripture, you now know, yes, that's Silas. Just like the one that we saw uh, dedicated with his family this morning, named after that Silas, that Silvanus. Same guy. It's almost certainly the same person. That Silas, Acts 15.22, references him, that it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Silas shows up many, many times in the New Testament. He's an important dude. He's not part of the Big 12. He's kind of the next layer down. That's who he is. In church history, when Paul and Barnabas get into a disagreement about John Mark, who we're about to hear about, and they decide to part company, Barnabas goes with John Mark and Paul goes with Silas. Silas was another Roman citizen, just like Paul was. They traveled together. Paul and Silas at one point were beaten and cast into prison together. Again, we heard about that just a few minutes ago. During the night, their chains fell off, and instead of fleeing, they converted the jailer. We don't know when Silas died for sure, but according to legend, after being the bishop of the church of Thessalonica, he was crucified by Nero somewhere before A.D. 70. At some point, the Roman Catholic Church declared his holy day to be July 13th, which maybe that was the day he died. We don't know. But here's what I want you to see in this passage and something that I love, very passionate about. I'm very, very frustrated with where our culture is going in regards to identity. Um, this, is, this is bordering on insanity, and it's costing us hugely. This is a crafty trick by our enemy, the adversary, to trap us inside of our own heads, to trap us inside of our own thoughts, so that no one gets to say anything about you but you. This is an evil thing. This isn't a simple little nothing. This isn't like, eh, whatever, you know, no harm, no foul. No, this is horrific. Human beings, we are created to invest in and engage with one another. We're desperate for it. And I mean desperate. This is me as a psychologist, a therapist telling you, we are desperate for the approval and affirmation of one another. We need it. We need to be speaking these words into one another, that the words of kindness and encouragement and challenge and exhortation. We need these in, in our lives with one another. And what the world, what the devil is doing right now is teaching us in our culture that we must never accept input from another person. They might say something to offend us. They might say something we don't agree with. No, no, the only person who can say anything about me is me. And we've already talked about this when we talked about slavery. If you think you're that one special human being who'd make, be an awesome slave master, forget it. You're not. You're lying to yourself. We are not good masters even of ourselves. And the thought that we'd be the only person who could speak into ourselves is, is truly horrifying. We need it. And I would use a stronger word than desperate if I knew a better word than desperate. Our children desperately need it from us. They need to hear these things from us, that we are proud of them. I am stunned that to this day, I still have adult men come to counseling and say that they never once heard from their father, I love you. That's just evil. If you're a father who's never told your children that you love them, cut that out now and start telling them. If it makes you feel awkward and uncomfortable, grow up, deal with it. You have got to, we have got to start doing this. God modeled this for us. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He modeled this for us. We need to be telling our children that we love them and we're proud of them. Moms, they need to hear it from moms too. And husbands need to hear it from wives. And wives need to hear it from husbands. And we all need to be hearing it from one another. And we get it modeled yet again for us here. Can you imagine Silas 
taking this letter that's been sealed up. Peter probably wrote the last couple of verses by himself. Probably didn't have Silvanus write about Silvanus. So Peter takes it himself, writes us a little bit himself, probably. Silvanus takes it sealed. Some point along the way, Silvanus, you know, probably cheats, cracks it open just to read and see what the letter is saying to Peter. Or maybe he didn't hear it until it's being read in front of the church when he hears these words. But Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. This sounds simple, but let me just tell you, this identity of bestowed identity, I regard him. Listen, it's my opinion. You want to disagree with me? We can fight about it. If my opinion's worth anything, and keep in mind, this is the Apostle Peter, if my opinion matters, it's this, he is faithful, someone to trust, reliable, dependable, someone to place faith in. No, no, you hold my rope. This is, this is the imagery that came to me immediately. I was rock climbing one time, and, and I was supposed to be repelled off a cliff, and there was someone standing there holding the rope, and I didn't know him. Luckily, Paul McKenzie was there, and I was like, no, no, him. He, he's going to hold the rope. We're going to have Paul hold the rope. I know he knows what he's doing. I don't know you. So when I put my life in my hands, it's going to be him, not you. That's faithful. And brother. Just like in the English, we can mean literal biological brother or relationship that's similar. Listen to what Paul says about a friend, Epaphroditus, in Philippians 2.25. I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. That's speaking identity into somebody. Epaphroditus knew what the Apostle Paul thought of him in that moment. For he has been longing for you and distressed because he heard, you heard he was ill. But notice, it's not just that Silas is faithful. It's not just that he's a brother, but he is a faithful brother. The two words together mean even more than they do independently. We should rest in the truth that there is such a thing as a faithful brother. Can we accept the bestowed identity of others? Anytime it is in alignment with God's identity for us, if it's not, toss it. If somebody's in disagreement with God as to who you are, ignore it. But if they're in agreement with God with who you are, accept it. We need it. We need to hear it. We never outgrow it. Doing so, remember that in 1 Peter, earlier in 1 Peter, Peter said this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. We get to work as His exalters in one another's lives at times. Let him speak into our identity and the others. So by Silvanus, a faithful brothers, I regard him. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We've seen that phrase over and over again. We see it all through Scripture. <clears throat> the idea, like in the letter of Ephesians, we're supposed to walk. The active verb in Ephesians is walk. Walk, 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 walk. All through Ephesians 1 through 5 and a half. And we get into Ephesians 6, and all of a sudden the active verb changes. Suddenly, instantly, and powerfully to Stand. When you face persecution and trial and all these things, though everyone else falls, you stand. If the entire church empties out, you stand. If everyone else gives in, you stand. When the battle is over and there's nothing but broken bodies laying around, you still be standing. And then verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. And by the way, i got to comment on when we're talking about speaking identity, that's one of the reasons our church is passionate about fostering and adopting and, and discipling and, and equipping. This is actually, uh, you may not have got to see it, I know it was in any, in any of y'all's bags. It's actually the onesie that we put on the little kids who, we, uh, who are part of the, because we're already telling them at this stage, you're a future minister. We're already speaking that into you. You're a minister of Jesus Christ. Be prepared for that. We know you're going to be 
doing that kind of stuff. Minister in training, we, we, we want that to be a part of that. This is a church that mentors and disciples and adopts and fosters, that claims verbally, openly children and lets them know how much we love them and how much God loves them. This is who we are. Now, this last little bit is just kind of fun. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Again, this is not probably his biological son, Mark. This is probably John Mark, the writer of the book of Mark, the one who triggered the fight between Paul and Barnabas. And, and again, you have this declaration, my son, the identification, the speaking boldly identity into another adult man. The co-elect one in Babylon is kind of a fun one. If you want to do some study on that, there's great debate among theologians and Bible students as to who this is. Does this just reference the church in Babylon? Maybe. And by the way, Babylon almost certainly does not mean Babylon. It almost certainly means Rome. Um, Babylon is the nickname for Rome all throughout the New Testament. Um, first Peter, that, that he, like in 1 Peter 1-2, it could be the church in Babylon. <clears throat> Note, remember in 1 Peter 3-7, he says, Husbands, love your wives. It uh, talks about husbands loving their wives and living with their wives in an understanding way as co-heirs. Um, so some people think that this is actually Peter referencing his wife who is there with him. In other words, the missus says hi. It's kind of what he's saying here at the end. Some people also think that this may be Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, who's being referenced here. But whoever it is, it's someone that he doesn't want anyone who would find this letter to know is in Rome. So they hide the name Rome with Babylon, and he hides the identity of the person. Bestowed identity with son. It says in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. This is just more intimacy, probably even more bestowed identity. Like it says in Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Did you know that? That when we do that little meet and greet time on Sunday morning, when we're shaking hands, when we have the holy handshake instead of the holy kiss or the holy hug, or the holy fist bump, or whatever it is, and we're greeting one another. We're greeting one another in the name of the church everywhere. That the that Christians who are gathering around the world on Sunday to worship Christ together, that we're shaking hands with one another all around the world, greeting one another in the name of the church. Part of what I love coming to Sunday morning is the reminder of how we're connected to one another all around the world. And some of them are suffering right now. Some of them are doing so or greeting us from hiding. Some of us are greeting us from prison. Some of them are greeting us from torture. Peter must be such comfort to them. And then finally this, peace to all of you who are in Christ. What a fascinating line to end a letter about persecution. Peace to everyone in Christ. This man, Peter, the human being, flawed, afraid, impetuous, unwise, slow to listen, fast to speak, and yet he has given us this work of art for us to wrap our brains around and our souls around to find comfort in even in the midst of the topic of persecution and pain and suffering. What a gift. Stand with me if you will. I'm going to read this section again as a way to prepare ourselves for the time of invitation. Uh, my prayer would be that you're listening to what the Spirit has for you, how the Spirit has spoken to you through this, through this whole letter and certainly through this last section that whatever that is. And that you need to respond however you need to respond, however the Spirit leads you to respond. Do you need to come up here and pray? Then do so. If you need to pray where you are, great. If you need to head to the corner and pray with some people over there in that prayer corner, we'd love for that to be the case for you as well. If you need to go find someone in the room or text someone right now to apologize to them or to make things right with them, do it. Don't wait. If you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ because you have never accepted 
that He has paid this price for you and you want to receive it as a free gift, come up here and we'll pray with you. Or do so with someone who you know out there would love to pray that with you. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, you can come let us know that this morning as well. Um, We'd love to have you. So let me read this and then I'll turn it over to Colson. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen.